Hello and welcome to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM here in Prince George. We are broadcasting and recording in the traditional territory of Clitlaytene. On today's show, we talked to Dr. Michelle Venter, who is a postdoc in the Conservation Solutions Lab at UMBC. To start off, we were wondering if you wouldn't mind just giving us the brief on who you are and how you've ended up doing your postdoc here at UMBC. Um, I'll start way back. I don't know if your guests usually do that, but Great. oh yeah, it's a painfully open-ended question. Yes. So that's, that's good. Um, I'm from Northern New Brunswick. Um, my dad um, lives still in the same house that his dad built. He was born there, um, so he knows the forest around our home quite well and his dad knew the forest quite well as well so and we spent a lot of our time camping I think it was I think I was 16 before the first time I slept in a hotel like we would go to Ottawa and we'd find <laughs> a campground like, <laughs> my dad's a true nature person so I was always amazed at how he was able to know everything about how things work in the forest like this color means that or this coming early means this or I, I always thought that was very fascinating and um, I guess I pursued a um, uh, an undergrad in ecology and that led me to doing a PhD um, in uh, forest carbon but in Papua New Guinea and this was I did this in, uh, in Australia which is uh, surprisingly close to Papua New Guinea. Uh, and then after having a couple children, um, we, well, actually one child, uh, we moved back to Canada and then had another child. And then now I'm just learning um, this new language. I always feel like going into a, a forest is like learning a new language. Um, you have to learn why trees are grow certain places, who they are, um, why they um, why they they're find, found in certain associations that sort of thing. So I always I find that very interesting. Right. I feel like when you step into a forest, you really don't see what's happening at first. It just takes time to understand, and that's kind of what right. I'm doing right now. As I, I guess the the context of a forest is can be very different in different hemispheres, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely. Uh, everywhere you go, it seems, especially BC, there's so much variety. Every, uh, you know, you, you drive, you can drive a few hundred kilometers, and you have a different forest type, which is interesting. Noting on that, like it's such a, it is such a steep learning curve. Have you said, like, even in Eastern Canada or like where I grew up, Eastern US, like we're talking about like maple trees and ash trees, and then I come here and I'm like. There's 10 different types of conifers, like what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can definitely exactly. be a lot. Yeah. And so you said you did your undergrad in ecology and then moved on like more specifically, obviously with the PhD in Papua New Guinea. So like kind of like what's the like the broad focus of of your work then and, and as you've evolved now and, and you're doing here? Um, the broad uh, focus would be, I guess, tied into the global carbon cycle. Um, I guess uh, looking at carbon budgets and forest carbon budgets. So how management um, affects uh, carbon stocks in the forest. So how much carbon is stored. 
Um, also um, looking at different climate uh, and environmental flat factors that influence uh, how much carbon is stored um, in the forest. And this is just a very topical um, subject. So it's, it's always exciting to do research and something that's topical because um, it, first of all, there's funding, which is great, but also you get to ask questions and get answers and people are, in, are interested in what you have to say. So yeah, yeah, totally. a, yeah so I feel very, very lucky to be working on a topical subject right now. Yeah. And, and, and just, would you mind just giving us like the, the crash course on what we actually mean when we're talking about a forest carbon budget or a forest carbon storage? What is this like carbon dioxide or is this just the, the atom carbon itself? <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back. Cause I know it, it's, uh, it's actually even for, for someone like me who's been studying for a while, it's can be quite, um, complicated. But basically, we uh, we have a carbon budget, a global carbon budget, and um, the more carbon we pump into the atmosphere, so uh, the more it's contributing to climate change. And a lot of this carbon that we're pumping into the atmosphere, it's this new carbon that we're basically digging up from the earth, right, and <laughs> burning it in our uh, heating systems, in our cars making cement, that sort of thing, like our day-to-day -day lives, all this new anthropogenic carbon that used to be locked up in the earth and now is in our atmosphere, which is causing climate change. And uh, as we know, there's these policies that are, um, that are binding, uh, that are asking individual countries to reduce uh, their emissions, to reduce the temperature rises because if we're, we continue on the same trajectory, there are basically going to be some like real catastrophes. So uh, each country is committed to reducing um, their, their, their carbon output basically. And forests um, are a massive store of carbon on earth. They're one of the largest stores of carbon and it's a very dynamic store uh, compared to uh, like fossil fuel or the ocean or even, um, uh, I won't get into it, but yeah, basically it's a very dynamic store. You can have a lot of the carbon which is stored in the trees. So the tree itself um, can be returned to the atmosphere if it's burnt or logged or decomposed. And basically um, trees breathe in carbon dioxide through photosynthesis and then they store it in their structure half if you would cut down a tree dry it and weigh it half of its weight is carbon so you can just oh, imagine wow. how much carbon there is in, in a tree and the same for the roots but also um in the dead especially like in places like bc where the temperatures can be cold and decomposition can be low there's a big uh, amount of carbon stored in the dead wood so the logs that are uh, in the, like in the forest so and some of it uh, when it decomposes it there's through respiration goes back to the atmosphere but there's also some that's kind of grabbed by the soil so it can be covered by moss and then eventually that carbon is returned to the to the soil so that that soil um pool is 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 big and it's in, it can increase depending on how the forests are doing so and it's a very important pool in bc 
I used to work in the tropics and all the work was based on the above ground. So the, the trees, because that's 90% of the carbon was, was stored in the trees while here in BC, in a lot of um, ecosystems in BC, um, and the further you go up north, you have a larger allocation to the soil. So like up to 50% or more is stored in the soil oh, wow. or the other pools. So it's always important to not just consider just there's the trees, but the whole forest. And, and is that because I, I seem to remember hearing that soils in really hot places um, can be really thin in comparison to in BC, like like soils in tropical forests, there will only be like, you know, 20 centimeters thick or something like that compared to BC where you'll have, you know, a, a, a soil that's a half meter thick or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So it could be like the mineral soil might vary, but yeah, that that soil that contains a lot of the carbon, which is like the, where there's organic compounds like the hummus or the forest floor, um, in the tropic is just so productive that something falls on the floor, like, and the leaf will be gone the next day, either by an insect or like, it's just like the demand for resources are just the competition for resources are so high that, yeah, that, that wow. pool just cycles. It's just, it's just so great. Well, in here, here, um, it's a bit slower of a cycle. There is some decomposition oh. that happens yeah. and, you know, animals will, or will eat or, uh, but it's just, it's just slower. <laughs> um and can i just i can see you're gonna ask a question Kristen, but i've got a really quick one to slip in here um you so you say like carbon gets stored in the soil it can also go up in the atmosphere does that mean um like when we talk about atmospheric carbon it's mostly carbon dioxide or co2 um but you're just talking about a carbon budget generally speaking so are you actually concerned with the different chemical speciation of carbon or you're just looking at where are all of the carbon atoms going exactly so we you know we we're made out of carbon we breathe out carbon dioxide you know trees uh breathing carbon dioxide so like it's just basically where the carbon is going it's all the same but it's just we've to kind of close up my my explanation is that we've upset this balance where we're, we're pumping out way more carbon into the atmosphere. And now we're, we're pressed to find ways to reduce those emissions. And although we could slash all fossil fuel, all fossil fuel emissions, that's not going to happen as, as quickly as we thought it would. So it's going to take a lot of time. And, and so now we're looking to forests basically as this massive carbon store to how can we manage forests in a way that increases the carbon sink. So hmm. we could do so through planting trees or changing management, increasing fertilization. There's a bunch of different ways that we're looking to what's called natural climate solutions, basically. And this uh, governments are looking to this quite strongly right now, just because <laughs> because they're scrambling, they're not meeting their targets. So yeah, so there's a lot happening. And in BC, um, there's the Forest Carbon Initiative, which uh, has provided lots of uh, funding to look into different measures to do this. So I guess my question is, and maybe this is kind of dumb, but it seems like like when I've always been hearing about things like like all these different carbon solutions, it's been a focus on like like plant 5 billion trees. But like it seems like the soil picture is really missed. So it's like, I guess my question is like when you when people are doing like 
you know, carbon modeling and all that type of stuff, like, have we always been taking into account soil or is this kind of a newer thing? Um, hmm. I'm not sure. I think, you know, we're still learning a lot about soils and how to, how to like changes in soils are quite slow. And we're, we're in BC, there's a lot of work done mapping the soil carbon right now. So we're getting a better idea of how um, soils do work and how they store carbon. And we're learning a lot of new things. It might actually look like it's very slow, but the changes in carbon might be because that they're like going downstream or there's a lot of stuff that we really don't <laughs> still understand. And there's a lot of yeah. like, when you start measuring carbon, you always find this like missing carbon. You're like, where does carbon go? We don't really know. So um, some new kind of theories are starting to think that it, it is actually leaving the system through either soil or water. Um, so, but it's just, yeah, I'm always amazed how <laughs> there's these new things that we can learn about forests well, and the carbon cycle. and Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense that like, I don't, like something like trees, like you can, you know, run LIDAR and stuff, but it seems like with soils, like if you drive three hours or four hours south, you can be in like a more arid environment and you're going to completely have different soils. So it does make sense that it would be, it's just not as straightforward as something like trees that are growing. Yeah, it isn't. No. And how, yeah, it, it's, it is a very important pool. It's like the biggest, one of the biggest in the province, but yes, it's uh, how how management or even disturbances like through pests or fires, how that affects um, the soil carbon is really important because it's such a big pool. Yeah. And so um, if I'm understanding this then correctly, it, it sounds like it is more challenging to calculate carbon storage in soils versus in trees. Um, like as Kristen mentions, you can use remote sensing to kind of estimate how much uh, foliage there are and, and on trees and stuff like that. Um, so do you guys, does your group really focus on the carbon storage in trees specifically, or do you also look at, at soils as well? Yeah, we look at the whole ecosystem. So we, um, uh, so we're looking at, um, what, yeah, the whole ecosystem. So the main pools, which are uh, soil and then the forest floor, which is a lot more dynamic and then uh, the trees and the roots. Oh yeah, and the dead wood as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great, well, th thanks for that uh, explanation there. And I think that's uh, about time um, to call it on our first set, unless you've got another question to squeak in there. No, Kristen. no, I think that leads pretty well into what our next set of questions will kind of dive into. Great. Okay, we'll leave that there, and then we'll come back uh, for our second set momentarily.
was Bruce Coburn with April in Memphis. You're listening to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM here in Prince George. Welcome back to The Abstract. Today we're talking to Michelle Venter, who when we left, we were just talking about all the different parts of the ecosystem that can store or emit carbon. So can you just kind of give us a brief rundown for those who maybe have never really done this type of science? Like how do you actually collect this data and what are you actually like analyzing, you know, your samples and stuff for? Yeah, so like you mentioned, you can have a remote sensing um, uh, survey that would look how much forest you have and what is the change through time. But you, uh, there's no really rem- any remote sensing uh, technologies can, that can actually tell you how much carbon um, uh, these forests store. It's done through ground truthing. So you have to go on the ground and you measure, you basically measure trees. You you, it's a lot of tree hugging. You, um, you measure the diameter and then you take a height and then there's these neat formulas that will um, give you how much volume uh, and then you can add a density uh, for carbon. And then you estimate the root sisters based uh, on a proportion uh, from how much the tree is, how big the tree is, and you can estimate how much uh, the root, uh, how big it is and how much carbon there is. And then you do the same thing. So you set these plots and you measure lots and lots of trees, trees like thousands and thousands of trees. And um, then you set these line transects. Basically, you put a, a, a tape into the forest and um, you measure all the dead wood, the, the size of the pieces of the dead wood. And uh, for the forest floor, you take samples. So um, Basically, you just collect a sample and you send it to the lab and you analyze how much carbon there is inside those samples. And then this is for for soil, like the mineral soil, you can dig pits and then you have to um, assess what are the different layers, what are the different horizons and how much carbon there is at in each horizon. And then you're, um, I guess the most important thing is you, you can have a snapshot if you go once, but the interesting is when you go again and you see the change through time and how management or how climate or how these different aspects affect this change through time, which is could be an increase in carbon or a decrease in carbon. Starting with the tree example, you, you measure how much of a tree there is. What's the total volume of this tree? Um, and I guess, do you typically use an equation that says, okay, if you have this much volume of a cedar tree, then it's going to have x amount of carbon in it how do we know those equations did i imagine it has something to do with burning things up or something like that (laughs) um it's it's done through uh so it's done the equations are done through what they call destructive sampling so they actually cut down the tree like cut down a tree you weigh it you slice it you take all the measurements and uh that yeah and then you can um either just like the carbon content's pretty constant over the species. So, you know, so depending on how dense the species is, the denser it is, the more carbon it has, basically it's kind of that sort of function. So like a a tree that has a density of 0.5, which is a lot of like kind of what we see here in BC, a lot of it, or like in the tropics up to 0.1. So as dense as water, so we will have twice the amount of carbon for the same size. Oh, wow. 
So that's that's important for for um, knowing how much carbon there is. So yeah, so basically the, it's the shape that we're looking at. So once we know what shape typical trees are, we can estimate um, the volume based on just a diameter <laughs> oh, right. and height. Yeah. So uh, essentially it sounds like the material that is wood has a constant amount of carbon in it. Yeah. It just yeah. depends on the different species have different densities yeah, of wood. Exactly. That's the only thing that yeah. changes. And we're, I see. I, we're actually finding because of uh, climate change, things are growing faster. Uh, the density is lower, so there's possibly less carbon. So yeah, the growth is one of the biggest. Um, the growth rate is what affects basically density. The slow-growing species are often a lot more dense. Huh. I guess I just have one thing. Like I've noticed, um, like for my own sampling, I'll, I'll sample like an agricultural field and then I'm doing a lot of forest soil sampling. And just like, it's it, it's just so obvious the difference in the soils. Like in some of these forest areas, you know, you have to go down like a foot before you're through all the like moss and old dead stuff. So like when you dig your pit, I'm assuming you go like way down into the mineral soil. Then do you just kind of like measure like the volume of the, like how do you kind of figure out what's what for carbon in in the different layers of soil um well there's specific methods but it's just yeah it's it's all estimates so you you know that for like say a, a meter square there's um there's if you go this deep in that pit you know that there's uh, this deep is this horizon and then you estimate the carbon for that and then this layer is, has uh, is this depth, say 10 centimeter, and you know that there is, and the deeper you go, the less carbon there is. And then at the top, that's almost like 50% carbon. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. So like, I don't know, this feels like it's mind boggling to me, like, realistically, with those types of measurements, like, could you, could you like go to a forest stand, like, say, you know, a small stand in the ancient forest or whatever, and like, kind of build a budget for this, like, okay, you know, this cedar stand, that's a hectare, like, we kind of we can kind of give you like a pretty accurate carbon budget for the stand. Yeah, we can, we can tell you what, like, yes, we can, we can say what the, the, the carbon, how much carbon is stored in this stand. Yeah. Yeah. But, cool. Like, there's, there's a lot of it, like, <laughs> there's a lot of wiggle room for air, yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah, we can have yeah, a pretty good guess. That's cool. So you had mentioned that with climate change, trees are growing faster and that the density of trees is uh, reducing, I guess, as a result. Um, so that kind of makes me think about, um, you know, current BC forest practices where you cut down all the trees and then you plant uh, new ones. Um, does that mean that even if the new trees that we plant have been growing for the same amount of time as the ones that were there before, does that mean that those new trees that we've planted, if they're growing faster, could they potentially be growing at a lower density and capture less carbon than the trees that were removed? Does that make any sense? I've thrown a real hypothetical situation. <laughs> um, you know what? I, I think it's a great question and I just don't know the answer, but uh, Lisa Wood, which is another um, uh, researcher here at UNBC, she studies um, like wood fibers and carbon and uh, those properties. And yes, she, she would be able to, to answer that question. But yeah, hypothetically, 
I think if it's growing faster, the chances are that there's just more carbon, like the density, the reduction in density is just not going to play as big of a role as compared to the faster growing. But that's just, <laughs> it's just the best guess. Yeah. So I guess in theory, you could end up with a bigger tree in the end. Yes, exactly. Because it's growing yeah. faster mm -hmm. and then the difference in density maybe is balanced out. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Is part of the idea like how the crown or forest companies, whatever, managers, I guess, how they can like better manage the land that we have here in British Columbia that's either recently planted or hasn't been touched? Yes. Um, we, so we're looking into, there's these amazing resources out there that these long-term civic cultural trials that were set across BC. And these were set up by ecologists um, who were working as foresters for the government in the 1990s as a response to like the public outcry for clear cuts, basically. There is um, this, like the, the biggest Canadian civil unrest was, was in BC and it was um, to avoid cutting, clear cutting old growth forests. And I think there's like 800 people arrested or something in the early 1990s. And obviously the government was like, uh oh, like, let's do something about this. And so they set up these, uh, these what are called silvicultural trials, which are basically forestry trials that look at, well, let's do, let's, let's clear cut a stand. Let's not cut at all a stand. And then let, let's do these different types of harvesting, which would be like just harvest a few trees, uh, like evenly throughout, or let's do the small cut patches or how about we uh, remove 20% or 30% or so they had all these different like spatial configurations and also um, um, intensity so basically going from low intensity removal to high intensity removal and there's there's like 26 of those trials um, set in that time across BC and we're working in these trials some of them are like you know long forgotten about <laughs> and others are still quite active and have not only looked at the the like the civil cultural aspect, but also like the, the bio biodiversity. So, what do how do species respond to these different types of harvesting? And um, so, we took this opportunity to look at the the carbon stores because there were some measurements done like before the trees were harvested, and then at, immediately after. The, the trees were harvested. So we have these different snapshots through time of what's going on. And then sometimes some of them had like other measurements and then we went back and remeasured them. So we were able to see, well, in the last 30 years, what's what happened, like the old, whole ecosystem carbon, what happened if we harvest this, like if we clear cut, if we don't harvest or if we uh, harvest just partially. Unfortunately, the the harvesting, the partial harvest, which was like, I mean, a great idea. This, this was ideas that were set by ecologists in the 90s. And it was really trying to look at a more, um, basically a more sustainable way to harvest our forests. And it was trying to balance um, civil culture. So making sure that the trees are, are still vigorous, even though you're not cutting all down the trees, that you're still getting like, um, opportunities to, to log basically that's the the main goal if you're, you're if you're logging you want to, to have like return on your investments you want to have some good forest with good timber products 
and then balance that with uh, at the time, which was mostly like trying to like reduce mortality and that sort of thing, but also for biodiversity in some places was, was for looking at caribou or hmm. could have been for songbirds or different, different goals basically. But it didn't really take like, I, I'm not exactly sure if it was because it's not, it's just not profitable to do that. It's just way better to like the bottom line is you cut down all the trees and you prepare a site, you fertilize it, you replant. It's just like the return intervals are just are perceived to be better at least. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and it's just hard to log in a way that's complicated to train like um, loggers to do. Okay. Well, just cut around this tree and this patch and this configuration. So it never really, like there is some that happens, but it's mostly at this, like the, like the community forests are the smaller logging outfitters that will do that sort of logging. So basically the main, <laughs> the main um, type of forestry is still clear cut logging in, in BC, which it's, it's to me, it's, I'm going to say it, it's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now with yeah. this, uh, this, new way of value in forests so the biodiversity aspect and the whole public outcry thing didn't didn't quite (laughs) make the cut but now we have a a new basically a new opportunity is to value forests for um their carbon store so and there's actual market mechanisms that can do that so we have a carbon tax here 40 dollars per ton of carbon so we know how many tons of carbon is being sequestered or emitted from different carbon practices. So by looking at what we can do in this, basically, we know what happened in, third, in the last 30 years, we can project what, well, what's going to happen in the next 30 years and what can we do? And if we're starting to look at emissions from these forests, so what, what kind of emission happens in, um, in clear cut in 30 years compared to leave, leaving a forest unharvested or compared to um, looking at uh, like just logging some of the forests, what, what are the opportunities there? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to know capitalism is always working well when, uh, you know, you can value a forest by the, when it finally has a dollar value attached to well, it. Well, my yeah. naivete when I moved here, I the first time, this is so, this is so embarrassing, but... Uh, since you came out and said it's outrageous, I'll say that it's also outrageous. I looked at Google Earth and noticed, saw these patches and was like, what are all those patches on Google Earth? And the person was like, yeah, those are clear cuts. And to me, it was just mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't know people, I didn't know that was still a practice that happened in the world that we're clear cutting. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah my, my five-year-old son asked me just recently he said mommy why do you care so much if people cut down trees <laughs> i'm like well like it's not i'm trying to tell him that it's not bad like there's nothing like our our house is made out of trees our deck is made out of trees like it, there's nothing wrong with forestry and it's actually it's such a vigorous and important part of our economy we need to support it but at the same time we need to we need to see the other values that that forests have and if we can have a more balanced approach, which is really what the BC government is is striving towards quite strongly right now. So yeah, totally. I, I definitely do have hope. 
Yeah. Yeah. On that note, I think we're uh, <laughs> at the end of our second set here. So um, for the third set, uh, we'll be coming back to dive into uh, a little bit more on these long term uh, monitoring projects that were going on. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> Trouble, oh, trouble set me free I have seen your face and it's too much, too much for me Trouble, oh, trouble can't you see my heart away and there's nothing much left of me I've drank your wine you have made your world mine so won't you be fair so won't you be fair I'll have to go there Trouble, oh trouble, move away I have seen your face and it's too much for me today heard the track Trouble by the one and only Father John Misty. You're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM online at cfer.ca. We are back with Michelle Venter here and we've had some really interesting discussion about some long-term monitoring plots that have happened here in BC and uh, we'd like to dive into talking about some of these projects specifically. So it sounds like you've got some research going on in the Kispiox area where these long-term monitoring plots have been active and we're wondering if we could just talk about some of the work there and the uh, maybe results that are coming out. Yeah, that'd be great. Sorry, um, before you start, can you just give a semi-geographic where is the Kispiox for mm. people that aren't yes. from here? So you're heading towards Smithers, and then just as you kind of get to Smithers, instead of continuing towards the coast, you head a bit north. And you're kind of like at the point where you're, the forest is, it's where the coastal forest, like the coastal Douglas, uh, not Douglas fir up there, co co coastal uh, cedar hemlock meets like the interior cedar hemlock. And it's one of the most diverse forests, cool. and it's absolutely beautiful it's like it's stunning it feels like you're in a dream when you're in there it's like 
covered in thick moss. Uh, the the forests there are uh, they're like they're quite old. They can they do have fires like stand replacing fires, but it can happen every you know 300, 400, 500, 600 years. So you'll find these um, you know these massive trees, and you're quite at a northern latitude, but you'll still see trees that are like um, an amabilis fir with that's about forty meters tall. Oh. Like these beautiful firs with these huge pine cones, like bigger than your head. Like it's just like <laughs> it's magical. It's and the the understory is quite sparse because these large trees. There's there's twelve like about twelve species of, of trees that, that reach canopy um, height. So it's quite it's quite tall, and so you can walk through these forests without like walking through brush. The only thing you have to do is like walk over these fallen logs. So it's like, it's it's quite a beautiful forest. I, I was very impressed. I, I didn't expect to see such large biomass forests for like such a Northern latitude, but yeah, pretty hmm. impressive. Very cool. And so that's, that's where these, some of these long-term monitoring plots were set up in the nineties. That's right. There's a, um, there's a, ecologist who's retired but he's, he's his name is David Coates and he's he's kind of a pioneer looking at like forests managing forests as a co complex system and using disturbance trying to mimic disturbance like natural disturbance through pest or wind or fire to to harvest so that way it's like a more natural way so you're not just doing like these mini clear cuts and hmm. you know or or just it's more of a like a process-based sort of logging, hmm. um. So he set up these these amazing like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, it's a bit nerdy, but like when you set it, you step into a forest that has a, a trial, which is come like such a, a beautiful experimental design. It's quite exciting. <laughs> it's just yeah, you just don't have to. You just have to collect the data, and you don't have to worry about your statistics basically <laughs> <laughs> somebody else worried it uh, worried uh, about it before so um yeah so yeah this is it's a large trial that the whole uh it's a it's an official research forest and it's 400 uh 4, hectares and each of the like treatments or trials are you know 10 to 20 hectares in size so it's a really it's a large scale uh, and long term um forestry trial, which is our, it's quite rare, actually, like even across the world is that sort of scale of experiment is, is pretty rare. And so are you like continuing the work that they had done in the past or are you kind of starting up your own thing up there? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's basically the, although there was never like a carbon angle, so we're just adding that, but it's using a lot of the same data. So we're able to see it, to see, so, so it, um, so we wanted to know basically if you log uh, clear cuts, the, our basic question was if you, after 30 years or after 26 years, is there more carbon in the clear cut plus the stuff that you collected and is stored in like buildings? Because basically it's not all the emissions, right? Like you have some of this wood which is stored in buildings. and. Or is there more carbon stored in after after 30 years of um, of logging, or after 
30 years after logging, is there more carbon stored in the forests in those partial harvests as a less intense harvesting? Mm. Plus the stuff that they they harvested and stored in. <laughs> Plus the stuff that they harvested uh, and stored in like homes or buildings or in intact forests, basically the, the, the forest that they didn't harvest. And that was our basic question. We just wanted to know, is there more carbon in clear cuts or um, uh, partial harvests uh, of low intensity or high intensity? So basically they, the, the low intensity one was they re removed 30% of the trees. And then at a high intensity, they removed 60% of the trees and the clear cut is 100% basically mow down the forest and then intact you just don't touch the forest but we started seeing these interesting trends where um the we weren't expecting the forest to recover in those partial harvest to recover as fast so the the 30 percent harvest the 100 percent of the carbon stocks were recovered in oh, wow. in 30 years so they had recovered to pre-harvest but uh harvest levels, which means like in the carbon world, this is a net zero, basically emissions in mm -hmm. 30 years. And then even more surprisingly, what we found was that intact forests were accumulating carbon, even though these were like 200 to 400 year old forests, they were accumulating carbon at an incredible rate, huh. which is kind of like, this is something that we're, it's, we've seen more and more evidence for this around the world, but it's not its not really a, a piece of knowledge that has sunk, sunk, sunk into people's mind that like these old growth forests are not just stagnant and they're not declining in carbon. We don't like, uh, there's a, often this, this view of, well, we should cut down these forests because they're like decadent. They are decreasing. They're not as, you know, they're not vigorous if we plant it with this new forest. But what we're seeing is that because of different factors and one of them climate change, which in this part of the world is bringing more moisture, more warmth, less freezing days. They're accumulating carbon at an insane rate. So I'll, I'll just let you know how much basically, <laughs> so it makes sense to you. So each, um, the emissions are looked at per capita, basically. So we look at all the anthropogenic emissions from a place like say BC, and then we divide it by the amount of people. So that's not how much you produce it's just the average per, per person. And in BC, I think it's 60. And in one hectare forest of these forests, if you leave it intact, let's just let it do its thing, it sequesters eight per year. So this one hectares of forest almost offsets all the emissions of one person. Hmm. Wow. And that's, so, that's in tons of carbon? Tons of carbon, yeah. Wow. Per, uh, yeah, it's tons of CO2, sorry of co2 per year okay. yeah that's crazy because wow. i feel like i've i've heard so much about like same as what you were saying like yeah these are like beautiful old forests that we should yeah some of it should be protected because they're nice to visit but like realistically they're not that much of carbon sink so i guess like this makes a kind of what you're saying makes more of a case for places like the ancient forest like they're not just protected so we can go forest bathing like there are these really important carbon sinks Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I always feel like the biodiversity for me, the biodiversity um, uh, argument is always the strongest, but it, it's not the one that that is very economic, economical right now. But yes, the fact that these car these these 
or it's just leaving them intact are accumulating carbon. And then what we found was that the, the clear cut for the first 26 years were actually a, um, a quite, uh, while the, you know, the intact forests, sorry, while the um, intact forests were sequestering, so they, the, the carbon was going from the atmosphere to the forests, right? Mm -hmm. Being removed from the atmosphere. The, the emissions from clear cut for the first 30 years were much higher than we were expecting. There were 22, basically. So each hectare of forest is emitting 20, over this period of time on, on average was emitting 22 um, tons of carbon. So it's, it's a lot. Yes. Obviously, as the, tree, the trees get bigger and they have a, a more capacity to absorb carbon like that will be that that average will reduce and eventually you know they will become carbon sinks but even after 22 26 years they're still quite big emitters huh. hmm. and i guess what we looked at is because we're trying to meet these 30 these 30 year um uh, targets so we have targets for 30 years and 50 years and 100 years so we know that if we wanted to to try and meet these targets and we're looking to forest to do so, our best bet is probably not necessarily to plant trees because we know that that's gonna take a long time for that, that, the, that critical mass of carbon to start to go from the atmosphere and sequestered by those, those small trees. But if we rely on those big trees that are doing the job like very well, because even though if you grow, if you're a big tree, even though if you grow just a millimeter, there's the sheer size of the volume added, the carbon added, it's mm -hmm. just, it's just like so much more carbon. So yeah, so it's just kind of looking at it in a, in a different way saying, well, if we want to do this quickly, well, our best bet is to probably not clear cut, hmm. is to do these alternative forests and let basically leave the forest as intact as we can, so they can and do what they do, which is sequester carbon. Right. And um, I apologize this is a curveball question because I, I, it, it sounds like your research doesn't quite overlap with it. But say I'm all pro-logging and I'm saying, well, clear-cutting is efficient. And in nature, we have wildfires anyways that clear out large swaths of forest. Um, do you have a reference on, on how how much carbon emissions might be happening from a burned forest compared to a clear cut? Um, I would be, I would think, I'm not exactly sure. I think it would be a bit higher. Um, but, and I do think that clear cuts might be, it might be suitable for certain um, forest type where they, it's basically if you have a, this forests that are, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning, Forests that have very frequent fire um, uh, or short, like say a fire burns naturally every 80 to mm -hmm. uh, 100 years, it makes sense to clear cut these forests compared to clear cutting forests that have these larger really long uh, fire intervals because basically it kind of in a way mimics what's happening anyway. So it's not, it's not that uncommon. Well, if you, if you're on an 80 year harvest cycle, if you, if you harvest old growth forests or like these forests that have these naturally longer fire intervals, you'll never re recover that carbon. Mm -hmm. it'll, it'll never reach back that, that state. So 
yeah, I should be more specific that this, that like this approach makes the most sense in those places where there's less fire risks. Yeah. So I guess like there is a, obviously a difference, uh, like forest types, um, in the Kispiaks compared to something like our inland temperate rainforest here near Prince George, but like do a lot of these lessons kind of still hold over because a rainforest doesn't have like 80 year fire intervals. Like, can you kind of move some of those lessons to this area? Um, I think we, uh, I don't have the answer for that. I, I don't really know what the, what the carbon accumulation rates would be. I, I think some of the lessons be, but maybe it'd be lesser. I'm not really sure. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, but I think that if you do leave a, a, a ecosystem intact compared to like starting it from scratch after a clear cut, you don't have that lag basically. Yeah, that so makes sense. There's that lag of like, you know, what we found 26 years where there's not much happening. So you're avoiding that at least. Mm. Yeah. And so basically we put some dollier figures So we look at the revenues from these different studies and obviously clear cut, like, you know, <laughs> it's much more profitable. <laughs> and, um, but then we started looking at putting costs to these emissions and there's different ways to cost emissions. Like there's the carbon tax, which is $40 per ton, or there's like what you would find on a cap and trade, um, uh, market, which is $15 per ton. Um, so if you have your own carbon project and you don't want to sell your carbon credits and these, you know, these markets value changes. And then there's the societal cost of carbon, which is measured by economists as the true cost of climate change. Basically that's what is costing us for like infrastructures that we need to build because of climate change, all, all like mm. uh, having to move people around or all the, the real cost to our society to climate change is $65. And we looked at just giving a value to these emissions from the different forestry practices and basically a clear cut switch from being the, the highest, the most profitable to the least profitable at $40 a ton compared to the, the other harvesting practice. And when we put the societal cost, which was $65, we found that it was actually more profitable to leave forests intact compared to cutting, which is a, a pretty scary kind of surprising sort of finding, although we're just looking at the first, like, you know, obviously the first 30 years, but if we're starting to put value on forests, we need to consider that, that there's actually a, a cost to our society, which is, is, is greater than actually logging the forest. So at that cost, if we want, if we're ready to pay $65, five dollars a ton so obviously that's very very high but it's just something to it's like a more of like an exercise in thought think about you know how we should be valuing our forests hmm. well uh we're almost out of time here but uh i just have to ask because you mentioned that you had done your phd based in papua new guinea and uh, i'm just wondering if you have any crazy stories to share uh you know i have no idea what it's like in papua new guinea and i imagine when you're trying to do field research down there, there must be some enormous uh, logistical challenges. So do you have any uh, <laughs> quick stories to share on that? <laughs> sure. Um, it's basically like a life changing sort of, sort of like event. Well, I went, I did six expeditions there. And one of the things I like the most about doing research in the forest is that it does feel like an expedition because you get to go places where other people don't usually go. 
like there's not necessarily trails or you know roads that that lead there but that's especially true through <laughs> New Guinea um so yeah basically it's you're flying into these every every step of the way there's danger you're flying <laughs> on these little how these little planes these they're called bush planes and they land you on an an airstrip and sometimes it's I mean, and there's like, you're landing next to like a debris crashed <laughs> like, plane, you know? And some of these airstrips are so steep and like, it's just crazy. You're like landing up a mountain and you get to these uh, villages and you walk around basically. And then you have to do your skill. They, they often think that you're some sort of a uh, prospector. So like you're, it's, they think you're, prospecting for carbon just as the same as you'd be prospecting for gold <laughs> so yeah you walk from village to village and some village are very open to to help you and then you'll, you'll head out from the village to the forest which might be two or three days walk and um yeah it's just <laughs> it's just an incredibly like uh awe-inspiring sort of of experience where uh, the people you're working with, they, they basically, they have nothing except for what comes from the, like they're very like, extremely sophisticated society with sophisticated rules and uh, like amazing like structures, but everything comes from the na- like nature around them. They don't have any shops. They don't buy anything. They'll have like a kettle basically that's about it to boil water. The rest is everything is made. Even your forks and your plates is all made from things that are are are, are around the the natural world. And then you're yeah, it's just just kind of learning about your humanity. Like I I was talking to a cocoa farmer <laughs> once. <laughs> he came to the forest with me, and I had some chocolate, and I was saving it for the last day to share with everybody. And he was like chocolate he's like i had chocolate once i was like really he's like yeah it's pink it's like he's a cocoa farmer but he's never tasted chocolate before like it's just like our worlds are so different Mm -hmm. but at the same time like i like i still keep in contact with some people like where you build these connections that are just so amazing and these forests are just like you know just out of this world beautiful and Yeah, it's extremely dangerous to a lot of like uh, near death experiences. <laughs> and yeah, it's just. <laughs> yeah, we should yeah, note that a... uh, prior to the interview, Michelle sent us a video clip of uh, the field research out there. And it looked like you guys were using full on mountain climbing gear just to <laughs> scale up some of the steep slopes, uh, just to yeah. measure trees <laughs> like you're, you're tied in with a rope while you're hanging out around this giant tree measuring it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like we were like, we would walk days and be like, we couldn't find a sample site because we were like all too steep. So, like <laughs> we have to sample this stuff. Right? Like we'll have to find a way to do this. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah cool. it's incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I wish we had a bit more time to chat about it. Cause I'm sure there's a, a lifetime's worth of stories there, but um that's it for today's show so i just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us yeah thanks michelle you've been listening to the abstract on cfur 88.7 fm here in prince george online check us out at cfur.ca taking us out for today is wildfires by salt enjoy your week